Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Now, uh, last week we looked at uh, the raising of Lazarus in John's Gospel and the plot to kill Jesus. And this week we're looking at two events that follow on from those things. And there are two events that we've just read about that on the face of it, they seem quite different. Okay, We have the, the first one as the anointing of Jesus in Bethany, which is a, a meal in a private home. There's a fairly intimate feel to it. And uh, it ends on quite a sombre note about Jesus' burial and also the plot to kill Lazarus. But then right next to that we have uh, Jesus' entry in Jerusalem, which is uh, a public event with huge crowds, uh, it's loud and it has a really triumphant feel about it. And so there are two events that really seem like they could you know, hardly be more different and yet here they are side by side and actually held together I think by three things that they each have in common. They each centre around an act of praising and honouring Jesus. Uh, they each include a, a statement of some kind by Jesus that challenges people's understanding of who he is and each one in its own way provokes some kind of opposition from Jesus' uh, enemies. And I think looking at them together, they really help us appreciate who Jesus really is and what he's done for us and what it means for us to live lives of praise uh, and honour towards him. So the first account is this dinner that is being held in Jesus' honour. And if it's great if you have chapter 12 open and you can see in verse 1, it says that this, uh, this dinner took place in Bethany. And then I love these three little words that follow that where it says, where Lazarus lived. (laughs) Emphasis on the word lived, right? Now Martha is serving, which is what she does from what we know is written about her. But if you look at the same story in Mark 14, it says that this dinner was actually in the home of Simon the leper. So it wasn't at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house as it might first seem like. It's probably some kind of community Thanksgiving dinner held in Jesus' honour because of him raising Lazarus, uh, their, their relative and friend from the dead and just for all the other amazing things that they've seen Jesus do amongst, amongst them. It also says that Lazarus himself is there. It's easy to miss the significance of that when we know the story. Um, here's this guy, four days dead to the point where everybody was worried he was starting to smell His body was decomposing and here he is alive and well and he's reclining at the table uh, for dinner with Jesus. Now at some stage during the meal, Mary comes over to the table where the men are reclining. At some stage she must have let her hair down, which would be inappropriate probably in those circumstances in her day and age. Uh, She breaks open a, uh, a, clay, a clay jar filled with really high-priced perfume. Now, this is not just your everyday perfume. It's not something she nipped up to a chemist warehouse and uh, got, not even from the top shelf 
where all the expensive stuff is. Okay, this is uh, an oil imported from India where it's taken from the root of the, uh, the nard plant. I'm no expert in ancient ointments, just in case you are wondering. Um, I, uh, did I Google it or did I ask my friend Stinky Pete? I don't know if you know about Stinky Pete, but he, he might know this stuff. But it is insanely expensive. 500 mils, which is what she had, was uh, the average, uh, la- uh, average labourer's wage for a year. So enough for a family to live on for a year is how much 500 mils of this stuff is worth. And there's no uh, screw tops or spray packs to sort of dose it out a little bit. She has to break the neck of the, the bottle and there's no one undoing this and she pours it over Jesus' feet. In fact, if you compare this with the accounts in Matthew and Mark, Mary probably actually pours it over Jesus' whole body uh, from head to toe. But what John highlights here is her washing Jesus' feet and her wiping, her, her wiping his feet off with her hair. And he's probably emphasising, um, well, what, what do you think he's emphasising? He's probably emphasising her humility, uh, the incredible esteem in which she holds Jesus and also the idea that she is at his service, bearing in mind that um, in chapter 13 Jesus is going to teach the disciples service by washing their feet and teaching them that they should wash each other's feet. And so what Mary does is she honours Jesus in this way that is extravagant, uh, intensely personal and incredibly humble, maybe even shameless in that day. And in a way it, it reaches out what she's done and touches everybody there because it says the scent of her perfume has filled the whole house. Now imagine for some who were there, the uh, aroma was probably actually not pleasant because not everyone appreciated what she was doing. And it was more than just Judas. So in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 it says there were some present there including some of the disciples who objected to what she was doing and rebuked her sharply because of what the, the value of that perfume could have paid for, what it could have gone, uh, how much it could have gone towards helping the poor. But John singles out Judas in particular as the one who speaks up, uh, I guess because he's not so altruistic. And now I guess you could say the house is filled with his voice, the voice of his selfishness. And he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? But he did not say this because he cared about the poor. He said this because he was a thief. He was the keeper of the money bag and he used to help himself to what was in it. And so the next voice we hear is Jesus' voice. And Jesus speaks up and he puts Judas and some of the others in their place and he says, leave Mary alone. And then we hear the first of his two statements that actually challenges everybody's understanding of who he is. And he drops this absolute clangor of a comment into the dinner conversation. And he says, leave Mary alone. It was intended that she saved this for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor 
but you won't always have me. Now imagine that. He's the guest of honour because he's raised four-day-old stinky Lazarus from the dead and he's now planted the image of his own anointed corpse into the minds of these guests to ponder uh, right in the middle of dinner, as they say. Now if we step back for a moment and look at the wider context, these verses, this event, is presented to us in the Gospel of John as a kind of Passover preparation for Jesus. So if you look back to chapter 11 and verse 55, uh, what it's saying there is it's almost time for the Passover. Uh, Many people were going from the countryside up to Jerusalem to the temple for their ceremonial cleansing. And while they're in Jerusalem undergoing their preparations, Jesus is actually the talk of the town. People are asking, where's Jesus? Is he going to come this year? Is he going to be at the festival? And the authorities are also wondering where Jesus is because they want to know where he is so they can arrest him just quietly. And it's right at that moment that John then says what Jesus is doing. He's actually in Bethany, just across the valley. And he's receiving a kind of preparation of his own, a kind of washing of his own, not water for cleansing like the pilgrims in Jerusalem, but with perfume for burial. It's a different kind of preparation for a different kind of role that he is going to play at the Passover this year when he himself will be the fulfilment of the Passover, the fulfilment of all the Passovers from every year, when he will actually be the Passover lamb who will die for the sins of the whole world once for all. And that is what he's looking ahead to and what we're presented with here, his preparations for the Passover. And then on that note, we come back to this dinner and also to what the Jewish leaders are doing while it was happening. And so the fact that Jesus and Lazarus are together at this meal has been attracting attention. Uh, Crowds are coming to see them both and it's because of Lazarus that people are putting their faith in Jesus. Lazarus has given them a reason to go, wow, this guy is amazing and put their faith in him. And so the, uh, the, the Pharisees reached the decision that not only are they going to have to kill Jesus, they're going to have to kill Lazarus as well. Things are getting pretty dark. Now the next day, it's time for Jesus to go up to Jerusalem himself for the preparation for the Passover. Now Jerusalem would have been filled with people already arriving uh, and preparing from all over the the Mediterranean world. Now apparently... uh, Uh, Just as I'm no expert in ancient ointments, I'm no expert in uh, geography either, but apparently the best way to arrive at the temple is from the east, uh, around the Mount of Olives, uh, past the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, to wind down into the Kidron Valley and come up the other side to the gate of the city that is next to the temple. And as you approach Jerusalem from across this valley, you could actually see the temple from a fair way off as you, as you came along. And, and people who were already there would see you coming and they would call out uh, the traditional kind of uh, greeting. And they would call out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as a sort of a, a word of welcome. And as Jesus approaches, uh, the crowd of people are ready to shout out, 
the usual, and they do, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's not the same as your average pilgrim arriving. It actually uh, becomes a huge scene. Everybody comes out of Jerusalem. They bring along palm branches with them and they are shouting the standard words of welcome. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. Now these words are, are special. They were said when people came along but today they have more meaning. Now these words come from Psalm 118 and they form part of the triumphant words that was sung each year at a different feast, the Feast of Dedication. Now we heard a few weeks ago that this feast celebrated the time when Simon Maccabees led his troops into Jerusalem in triumphant procession after defeating the Greeks who had earlier taken over Jerusalem and defiled the temple. And on the day of his victory, he marched uh, down the valley and up the other side and into Jerusalem, uh, riding on a war horse, and people welcomed him with palm branches and, uh, and sang his victory, and, uh, and it, was a, it was a huge deal. But on this day, as Jesus arrived, people uh, say those words, but even more importantly, they follow up the words with another phrase that really states how they understand what is happening here. And they say, Blessed be the king of Israel, uh, which literally is even, even the king of Israel. So here they are calling out, waving their palm branches en masse, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so they're welcoming Jesus as king. They'd heard about Lazarus, no doubt many of the other things that Jesus had been doing. And they're saying, here is the miracle worker, here is the, the death conqueror, the king of Israel, he's our liberator, he's the Messiah. This is, this is it. This is the day. And it would have been quite an incredible moment. So politically charged, a scene of nationalistic fervour and expectation. They're going to make Jesus king. It's a bit like uh, earlier in, uh, in, in John when uh, people tried to make Jesus king by force and he slipped away and he wouldn't have anything to do with it. But here, in a sense, he kind of goes with it. But he, he changes it a bit. And this is where the second statement that really challenges people's understanding of of him uh, comes in. And so Simon Maccabees rode in on a war horse. And what Jesus does is he goes and gets a young donkey and he rides into Jerusalem on that instead. And it's a message that Jesus is king because donkeys can carry royalty. There's no problem with that. But he's not the kind of Uh, victorious uh, military king that everybody is thinking he is. But it's a veiled message. We learn in verse 16, it's a message that the disciples did not understand until later. So I imagine nobody else would have really understood it as well. So he certainly didn't stoke the fires of uh, expectation by riding in on a horse uh, he calmed things down by riding in on a donkey. But nevertheless, people didn't really understand what that actually meant. And we learn in verse 16 
that the disciples worked it out later. Now, one of the most important things I, I find in, in Scripture is that after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent time with his disciples showing them how all that was written in the Old Testament pointed to himself and all that he had done and achieved. And he made that link for them. And so with that in mind, we can see why, uh, we can see why how later on they realised that that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, that was actually a statement by him that, that we should understand what he was doing in terms of the prophecy from Zechariah 9. And that's what they worked out later on. And that says in Zechariah 9, See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And in Zechariah 9, the prophecy is about the king arriving on a young donkey, one, because he is the king, and, and donkeys could carry royalty, but he's not a, a warrior king. He's not a king for war, he's a king for peace. And it says, See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to all the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so as Jesus is arriving to all this acclaim, he gets onto a donkey to ride on because he is not a, he is a king for peace, not just a peace, uh, not just a king for the peace of Israel, but a king for the peace, uh, for peace of the whole nations as well, to establish his, his reign, a reign of peace for all nations to the end of the earth. And that's uh, what he's saying as he rides in on this donkey. And it's really interesting to note, he, he is such a contrast to Simon Maccabees because he hasn't come purifying the temple from the Greeks. In fact, if you read ahead to verse 20, who is it who comes to the Passover and says, we'd like to see Jesus? And whose presence is Jesus' cue to say, ah, my hour has finally come? It's the group of Greeks. So he hasn't come to, bring, to purify Israel from the nations and make them victorious in the world. He has come as a ruler for all nations and so that through him, people from all nations might come under his reign of peace. That is the, the, the promise of the prophecy that he is fulfilling. And that is where the, the words of the Pharisees are just so on the money, more than they realise as they observe all this. And what do they say at the end? They say, oh, the whole world has gone over to him. Now, isn't that the whole John 3.16 God so loved the world that he sent this Jesus and that is what is happening the world is starting to go after Jesus but for the Pharisees this is frustrating this is not what they want and uh, this is what they've been trying to stop and so their complaint is you know, it's, it's getting us nowhere and so there we have these two different accounts, right? It's so different. The private dinner at Bethany, but the very public arrival in Jerusalem. And, and as I said, similar in that each one is centred around an act of praise or an honouring of Jesus. Each one has a statement of some kind from Jesus that just challenges what people are thinking of him. 
and then each one provokes some kind of response from his enemies. And so they really help us appreciate really who Jesus actually is and what he's come to do for us and what it means to live lives in his honour. As I've been thinking about this passage and and what we can take away from it, my mind was drawn to another uh, passage that talks about who we are as God's people and our calling to live for his praise and uh, what he came to to bring to us, why he really came. And you'll recognise that I'm sure it's from 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 and it's up on the screen and this is what it says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And when we hear those words, particularly the first part about living to declare the praise of him who has called us, we might naturally think of mission. That's what we're called to do. We're called to do mission. And in the uh, accounts we've just heard, we might think of the, um, the Israelites who go out and they sing from the mountaintops that Jesus is the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And that's certainly part of what it means to live for Jesus' praise, to, uh, to sing the news of Jesus from the mountaintops. But it's more than that as well. I love the way that those who saw Lazarus get raised by Jesus couldn't help but tell all these other people about what they had seen. And they'd say, do you know what Jesus did? He raised Lazarus from the dead after four days and they told people about it and people put their faith in Jesus. And that's part of what it means about living for Jesus' praise as well, sharing with others about what Jesus has done in the life of our community, the amazing stories about how he's transformed lives and brought people from darkness to light, about his changed people, giving them hope, uh, giving them... um, Uh, giving them uh, joy in their lives and talking about what Jesus has done before others. That's part of it as well. And then, of course, there is the example of Mary. Now, in a way, she doesn't tell anybody about uh, her praise of Jesus. She just tells Jesus. Now, of course, um, the aroma of what she does spreads throughout the house But this is really a moment between Mary and Jesus as she kneels at his feet, washes his his bare feet and wipes them off with her own hair. And she is saying, Jesus, I honour you above everything else in my life. I am so thankful for what you've done for my brother in raising him from the dead. I'm so uh, thankful for all that you have brought to our lives and our community and I'm holding nothing back, not my most costliest possession, not even my own dignity, my pride. You are to me above everything else. 
And isn't that also what it means to live lives of praise to Jesus? To praise and honour him is our calling and our response to his mercy in our lives as he came as a king, but a king to die so that we might have peace, peace with God and peace with each other. And there's one other passage that you probably thought of as well because uh, it's got a key word in it that we've heard tonight already and the, the, this passage is from 2 Corinthians 2 verses 14 to 16. It's on the screen as well and I'll just read it out. It says, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. There's that idea of a, a procession following a victor. He uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And so Mary's praise of Jesus literally brought, spread an aroma around the house. But to Judas in particular, it was not an aroma of life to him. But it was something that was offensive to him because it flew in the face of his own self-centred aims and desires. This is not what I want. And when we praise uh, the Lord Jesus, we've got to expect the same thing. For others it may well be the aroma of life, but to others it will be the smell of death. Just our own personal actions will be offensive to others because they'll fly in the face of what others think life is all about and they'll see it as death. I'd like to finish with an example. Uh, it's an anonymous example from somebody during the week I was speaking to that I think really sums up everything we've just heard. I was talking to a guy uh, this week who had um, been uh, recently for an operation, a significant operation, and he had gone back to uh, the surgeon's uh, office and the surgeon had said, it's been successful. Uh, it's gone well, couldn't be more pleased and because it was such a significant operation, the guy was elated. And uh, he, you know, he went dancing out of the surgeon's office into reception to fix up his bill and all that sort of stuff and, uh, and the receptionist says, it looks like good news. And the guy says, yes, praise Jesus in the middle of the reception area and the lady, of course, was offended. She said, don't thank God. Thank our doctor. But of course, you know, he was right to do that. Praise Jesus for the doctor, <laughs> whatever. Just praise Jesus. He ultimately is the source of what has uh, happened here. And I think, you know, here is an example of personal praise of Jesus. Like he really owned this and he is praising Jesus. It was a little bit uncomfortable, like Mary's uh, perfume was, even for the disciples. I put myself, as I was listening to it, I put myself in the reception centre uh, thinking, yes, steady on, you know, there's a little bit over the top, isn't it? But of course he was right to praise the Lord Jesus and in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a little, uh, in its own little way it drew some opposition from somebody else who said, no, that's misplaced praise, you ought to praise the doctor for that. But no, he praised Jesus and that's where the praise belongs. So why don't we pray now that our lives might also be lived to the praise of the Lord Jesus, whether it's declaring his name from the mountaintops, whether it's sharing with other people what he's done in the life of our community, in our own lives, 
or whether it's just us personally holding him uh, above all else as the centre and the, the focus of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, what we've read tonight and we particularly thank you for the wonderful, uh, beautiful example of Mary. And we just thank you for her, her courage and her humility and the way she saw the Lord Jesus so clearly and was able to, able to express so beautifully um, her wonderful love and devotion to him. And Lord, we pray that our devotion to the Lord Jesus too might begin there with a thoroughgoing and heartfelt love and thankfulness devotion and honouring of the Lord Jesus and from there we may be able to share with others what he's done in our lives and with the world that the Lord Jesus is King and we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.